Hello everyone, welcome back. We are so glad to have you here. I'm Sam Futrell, Virginia Council Social Studies board member and host of this humble podcast. If you're listening to this, when it goes live on iTunes, we are actually nearing the end of the spookiest month of the year, October. And if you're anything like me, you will be incorporating a little Halloween magic and storytelling into your history classroom this week because, dang, we all need a little fun right now. Um, We actually have a tradition in my classes that on the Friday before Halloween or on Halloween day, if it falls during the week, we listen to scary historical stories on one of my favorite podcasts, Lore. The kids love it because we get to turn out the lights and relax while listening to Aaron Mankey recount legends, mythology, and just weird historical events. And I always worry that the kids are actually going to be so bored by this because we're not actively watching anything. And as you know, Gen Z has like a big reputation for needing to be entertained. Um, And I basically have to trust that they won't fall asleep on their desk as um, Aaron Mankey's voice carries us through these dark little tales. But it's so funny because as we're listening, every time the story takes a strange little turn, you can just look around the room at the kids that have been relaxing and they all jump or lift their heads or look around and go, what the heck? All at the same time. And it's because we as humans are evolved to love and learn and feel captivated by stories. So over the next two episodes, we are going to be diving into stories and examining how they can help serve us as teachers, mold our students, and preserve our history. Today, we're actually starting with a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, using children's literature to teach tough topics. And we have two very special guests for you today. The first is our master teacher and president of the Virginia Council for Social Studies, Katie Blomquist. Katie is a fourth grade teacher here in Fairfax County, Virginia, and she has won countless accolades for her work as a teacher, including the Betsy Barton Teacher of the Year Award. You are all going to love Katie. She is just the absolute sweetest, and I just think she has the most delightful voice, so I'm really excited for you guys to listen to her for a little over an hour. And joining Katie and I is the widely acclaimed children's book and YA author Meg Liviet. We were introduced to Meg's book, Benno and the Night of Broken Glass and Paper Hearts, by one of our fellow VCSS board members, and we just fell in love with her writing. It is poetic and effortless and reverent. And because both of her books center around the Holocaust, she is able to give an amazing perspective on how to introduce children to tough topics in the social studies classroom. I loved this conversation so much. Uh, We actually ended up talking for over two hours. So figuring out what to cut to make this palatable for you all was difficult, but man, there is some good stuff in there, y'all. And I just hope that you enjoy it nearly as much as I did. So without further ado, Katie Blumquist and Meg Viviet. All right, everyone, welcome back to Content to Classroom. We are so excited to have our two guests on today to talk about using children's literature to teach tough topics in the social studies classroom. So Katie, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you came into teaching and working with Virginia Council for Social Studies, 
and just why you're interested in this topic in general. Sure, sure. Hi, everybody. I am Katie Blumquist. I'm a fourth grade teacher in Fairfax County Public Schools. That's in Northern Virginia, right outside DC. I've been teaching 17 years now. Um, and all of those years, I've been passionate about social studies. In the elementary world, it's fairly common, like I do, we teach all subject areas. Um, but social studies has always been uh, huge in my heart. And so I've been involved in a lot of the work that our county did and eventually um, was awarded the Teacher of the Year uh, by the Virginia Council for the Social Studies, which is how I moved into that organization. Um, and that was back in 2012. And just through involvement, have um, eventually became president. And I'm really excited with where our council's going right now, especially with podcasts like these. So it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we're so excited to have you on. Yeah, I know. I feel like in a way I have like my boss on the podcast today. Right. <laughs> so it's super intimidating. I can tell Katie's the most intimidating person. I am. I am. I make everyone nervous. <laughs> so Meg, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be a YA and children's book author? We've just really loved having both of your books come into our lives this year. I guess we were a little late to the game because they were published a few years ago. And even though we're always looking in my classroom, at least looking for Holocaust literature to supplement uh, our social studies work, we hadn't found yours. And I feel like I have stumbled upon like hidden treasure. Uh, they're just really, really wonderful. So uh, do you mind just telling us a little bit about your background and just how you came to be an author? Yeah, sure. First off, thank you very much for having me. And those are very nice words. And it's, it's always nice for a book to get discovered after it's been out for a long time. So it's, it does my heart good. Um, I have always been an avid reader as a child. Um, I used to be very happy in a corner with a book. Um, and I always wanted to write when I was about five or six years old, I decided that the world needed more little bear stories. So um, I wrote my own and I very proudly showed them to my father who was a professor at Columbia University. And he very gently just uh, explained the word plagiarism to me. Um, so it was a really long time before I showed either of my parents anything that I wrote again, but I wrote for a, a my entire childhood and I went through the angsty adolescent poetry stuff that I need to burn before I die so my children never read it. And um, I, I was just, I've always just been interested in writing. Um, and then yeah, I went to college, I was a history major. Uh, and then I was like, well, now what am I gonna do with my life? And I, I was working, I, had, I needed a job, a real job, money. Um, and I worked in various business things. And then I got married and I had children and I started reading children's books again. And that was when I really started writing again. Um, and then I, I wrote on my own for years and got lots of really nice rejection letters. Um, and then I sold Benno was the first book that I sold. And, um, after I, after I sold that, it was my son was, I think, a sophomore in high school or 
junior. And then he went off to college. He was my youngest. I was now an empty nester. And I thought, well, what am I going to do now? And I went back to school. I went to the uh, Vermont College of Fine Arts and got my master's in writing for children and young adults. And that, that's what I wanted to do. That's, and, then, and then came Paper Hearts. So that's yeah. kind of the journey that I have had. That is amazing. I, I think just that journey in and of itself is going to inspire so many people who hear that because you not only, you know, you kind of knew what you wanted to do from a young age, but you did go through that rejection process and yet you persevered and here you are on the Virginia Council for Social Studies podcast. <laughs> no, but really, I mean, that's amazing. Uh, what resilience, and I, I don't know, I just found that really touching. That's amazing. Um, well, we're just so happy to have both of you on. I, I can't say it enough. Doing this podcast is such a pleasure for me, mostly because I get to meet really amazing people and get to spend time with you all. So. Let's just dive in. Katie, uh, we're talking about tough topics in the history classroom. And I'm just wondering, you, you teach fourth grade. So what kind of topics have you found difficult to cover in your classes because they might be too intense, problematic, or just hard to discuss? And I guess, how have you responded to that? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I think that history is hard. Um, to say otherwise is ignoring a lot of terrible things that have happened in our past as a country and as a world. Um, and so how do you expose kids, even fourth graders or younger, like the nine and 10 year olds in my classroom, how do you expose them to what's happened in our history in a way that is both honest um, and digestible and appropriate for their age? Um, so in fourth grade in Virginia, we teach Virginia studies, uh, which I like to joke, Meg, I know you're from New Jersey, but I do like to joke that Virginia history is essentially American history, um, minus just one or two important events that happened out of state. Um, <laughs> but so we do go through the hard topics like slavery and um, segregation and the hard things that happened in the civil rights movement and even beyond that and the quest our, our country's been on uh, to achieve a semblance of equality. Uh, fourth graders are definitely able to handle those topics, um, but the challenge comes, especially in uh, very divisive times or polarized times of how to present that information to them in a way that is less political and more um, civil in its discourse, and also in a way that leaves them with a sense of hope about what they can do um, in their world, both today and in the future. Yeah, that's great. I, I was just listening to a podcast today that was talking about how one of the ways that you can teach kindness is by also saying that kindness that is reciprocal is, you know, really fulfilling to your brain. Um, and I think that that's kind of one of the ways that you can sort of teach these topics through is like just knowing that kids are can be empowered you know and they can have the power to 
to change what happens in their future and to change what's happening in their present uh, if they really act through that lens of kindness. Um, so have you ever used any children's literature in your classroom before? Or is this kind of a new venture for you? Oh my goodness, all the time. All the time. Um, I've taught uh, second grade through fifth grade and um, reading aloud to my students, no matter what the age, is one of the joys of my profession. It's one of many things that makes teaching uh, the best job out there. Um, so we will do read alouds daily, uh, whether it's a picture book that we're integrating uh, with language arts or social studies or um, whether it's a novel that we'll just come back in from recess and read aloud as a class and talk about as a class. Um, obviously, in our current virtual world, it's harder to do those longer read alouds. It's harder to have that conversation um, in a virtual classroom, but we're trying the best we can. Um, so just like I, I try the best I can with my daughter, I try the best I can with my students to make sure that they're constantly exposed to books and reading stories and learning through story. Yeah. Why do you think learning through story is so valuable? I think it's part of human nature. I think that we as people interpret the world through story. Story is something that makes sense to us just naturally. It's something that we've been doing forever, this idea of oral history and storytelling. Um, and so it's just a way for kids to grasp tough concepts and also to grasp what is just natural in their lives as far as like the emotion that comes from something, the relationships that are there, um, the struggles that different people face. Um, story connects us all together. It helps us see what we have in common. It helps us see what we don't have in common. So it's also a way to get, you know, an insight into a world that you might not have been a part of. So there are all these like beautiful nuggets that come from storytelling and reading books that are just, you can't get them any way else. Yeah, definitely. It's just such a good way to build empathy for people who might be different than you and and at the same time to you know learn about things that are in our past and that we are connected to in one way or another um and meg i know both of your books center around the holocaust and that is a topic that i have become more interested in over the years i actually got my masters in colonial American uh, Atlantic world history. So focusing specifically on African-Americans and people of color uh, in different religious movements in the South. So <laughs> the Holocaust wasn't necessarily on my radar in grad studies, but as I started teaching, it has really just seeped into everything that we look at um, in a way that is both, you know, kind of horrifying, but also illuminating and touching and just seeing really the, the grit and the cultural bond of the Jewish people um, and everything that they went through. So I'm, I'm curious for you, what drew you to that topic specifically? And what sort of considerations did you take when crafting your story to these different age groups? Well, I... I can't say I always wanted to 
when I was dreaming of writing as a child, I didn't dream of writing Holocaust books. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, it, quite honestly, it never even crossed my mind until I was in a conference. And this is going back many, many years ago um, of, of writers uh, at the, the um, SCBWI, which stands for Society of Children, Book Writers and Illustrators. And there was a, an editor of a very large publishing house um, speaking, and it was a small gathering. She broke up into different groups. And someone asked uh, this editor, what's the one project you would like to see come across your desk? And he said, I would like to see a picture book on Kristallnacht. And out of, every, out of the few of us in the room who actually knew what Kristallnacht was, you could hear us kind of like, and, and that stuck with me. And I, I kept wondering, how do you tell the story of Kristallnacht, which is essentially the beginning of the Holocaust, in picture book format for, for young children? And so it kind of became a challenge for me. How, how do I do this? And, and I would work on it, and I would put it away for a year, and I would pull it out, and I would work on it. And I finally got it down. I decided that it was, I, I write mostly historical fiction. And historical, the facts still matter, even though it's historical fiction. And things have to be accurate and correct. And I was trying to find that balance of how do you tell an honest story at the same time you're trying to make it intelligible for, for young readers. And so I, I wrote the story and it was just really facts. These are the facts, this is what happened. And I took it to my critique group and they very kindly told me that it was boring, that I needed, that in order to teach, it goes back to what Katie was saying, that in order to teach history, there has to be story. The best way we learn is through stories. There has to be a character that readers can identify with and empathize with and learn. And one of the women in the group suggested I use um, a child, tell it from the point of view of a child. And that poised all kinds of difficult problems because I did not want to do it from the point of view of a, a German child because I didn't want to get inside the head of the parents. I, that was not a place I wanted to go. And I didn't want to be inside the head of a Jewish child either, just because of how terrifying that would be. So I needed to find a character who was childlike, but not a child. I own cats. My kids say if my husband ever died and I was left all alone, I'd be that lady with the 34 cats that they hear about. So, but I, we only have one now. Um, and it, it was very easy for me to imagine. And also when my husband and I were first married, we lived in, in an apartment in Chicago and the super owned, had a cat. And the cat, he wasn't really the super's cat. He was just a cat, his name was Hobo. He was the kind of cat who looked like he should have a pack of cigarettes rolled up his shirt sleeves. He was just a tough, and everybody in the building knew him. Everybody, he would purr, he would visit people, and he slept in the furnace room. 
And so there became my cat. And it was through Hobo um, that I was able to tell the story and Hobo became Benno. The things that I think about is essentially how, how do you draw children in? How do you find um, the things that they can relate to and, and be attracted to and, and learn to feel empathy for? Um, and in Benno, I mean, everybody has understood, regardless of where, what your tract in life has been, everybody has been rejected at some point in their life, whether by their good friends or other friends or mean kids or the bullies, everyone can relate to the idea of being left out of something. And so I think in Benno, that's one of the things that um, kids can, can learn from. They've either done it to someone else or they've had it done to them. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. One of the things that I heard you say that really stuck out to me was that you were looking for sort of a neutral character almost to tell the story through. Um, And what I think is so genius about Benno is that not only is, is it a neutral character, but it's a transcendent character in that the cat can identify with either side, right? And the cat can, I don't know, just, show multiple perspectives, but can also, like, I'm not really saying this very well, but I think that the, the cat, go ahead, yeah. The cat is non-judgmental. Right, the cat he is- just reports what's happening, and mm-hmm. he's not even reporting, the omniscient narrator is reporting, but you're seeing it through his eyes, so there's no judgment. There is fear, but, and there's sadness, but there is, there is no judgment. Um, so Paper Heart, switching uh, to your other highly acclaimed book, uh, is actually a book in verse, uh, which was really surprising to me be- simply because I've read several books in verse, and I have to say that others I have not been huge fans of simply because I like poetry because poetry is succinct, right? And it's like, there's one poem and that's it, and it impacts you for your entire life. But I felt like that on every page of Paper Hearts. Um, Katie and I were actually texting about it uh, the the other day and just saying how amazing the writing is. So whoever you were in your angsty middle school years, uh, you you got some good stuff going on there. Um, It was really, really beautiful. So um, why did you choose to write it in verse? And do you think that that affects the way that students and children receive the topic and the messages in it? Yes, I, okay. Yes, I think it definitely affects how students um, receive it. And let me back up about why I chose to write it in verse. Um, I started it in straight prose narrative. I don't know, you guys are the, I need an English teacher to tell me which is the correct word, whether it's prose or narrative. But, and quite honestly, I couldn't do it. As a writer, you have to get up every morning and go into your story. You have to immerse yourself in it. And it was, I could not get up every morning and go to Auschwitz. It was, it was just too painful. 
So I started playing around, I had, I started playing around with verse and I had not written any poetry since I was a teenager. Um, I, and I don't consider myself a poet in any way, shape or form. And I think I do write somewhat poetically, but I started writing and I read a lot of novels and verse and I reached out again, I reached out to a friend of mine and I had a couple of people read my very early poems. Um, and one of my good friends wrote back and said, I know you're reading a lot of novels in verse. Have you tried actually reading some verse? Oh no, I hadn't read any poetry. Ooh. So I went to the library and I got out the Norton anthology of poetry, you know, that thing that's like a tomb. And I very quickly skipped through, you know, I was not rhyming. I was not writing in rhyme. I did not want to write in iambic pantan. I did not want to have to worry about counting syllables. I did not want any of that. And I very quickly ended in, in modern free verse. And there was a poem um, that I read by Billy Collins. And I should have brought it upstairs with me. It's called An Introduction to Poetry. And I can't recite the whole thing, but it's the end of it, it the last stanza of it is something to the effect, I'm gonna slaughter it, but it's something to the effect of all my students want to do is take the poem and tie it to a chair and beat it with a rubber hose until it tells them what it's about. And I thought, oh, oh, it doesn't, there's not necessarily any hidden deep dark meaning in a poem. Sometimes a poem is just the words on a page and there's not something that I don't understand in it, which is what I find with a lot of poetry. There's so it was kind of a long answer, but so that was how I started writing in verse. And from there, I, I think one of the very first poems I wrote were the, the very short, I think the one, the toilet, um, because it just gets, it, it sets the stage immediately of what life was like, what these women had to live with. And, and I think in terms of, how children, how readers, because I think Paper Hearts is not only good for children, but for adults as well, it breaks up the horror for them as well as for me. And you get to have it in little snippets and little pieces. Um, in the use of imagery and um, metaphor, um, the metaphor of the Paper Hearts and um, the white space, um, and the way I can arrange words on the page, because I do have some concrete poems um, in there. Um, and concrete poems, if I can explain very quickly, it's structured, the words are laid out on the page to resemble what the poem is about. So there are several train poems that look like train tracks, and there's a rhythm to them. There's two syllables in each of the sides, so that if you read it, you get the rhythm of writing on a train. So those things, um, students understand, readers understand what's happening, even if I'm not telling them specifically what horrible things are happening. And in specifically speaking to that, when I would 
write justify certain stanzas in poems where there would be a selection and some people were sent to the left and some people were sent to the right and even if a student doesn't really understand what's happening they know something is happening simply by looking at the page and seeing the structure of it um, so i think that just helps students take in what they are capable of taking in at the time that they were reading it. Yeah, it really helps them meet you where they are, you know, as a reader. And I think that that is really powerful and really rare in a lot of books for anyone, but especially for in the YA um, group. And one of the things that you said that really stuck out to me that Virginia Holocaust Museum has taught me a lot about, uh, which is not glorifying horror, you know? And I think that your book just does such a good job of presenting it as both fact, but in like a beautiful way of just, of just allowing again for absorption rather than feeling like it's trying to be entertaining. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, you know, it just feels very, feels very organic, feels very natural, and it feels very respectful to me when I read it. Well, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. I, I have to say that is when I was learning about the Holocaust, we were like beaten over the head with facts, you know, six million Jews, six million Jews, Auschwitz, death camps, labor camps, and, and there were just, it, it almost becomes more than, more than a person can absorb. You just can't take in that much. And again, there has to be a way for kids, for readers to identify with who's in the story, what's happening to them. Um, and th these are, these are girls just like anybody else. Um, they had, families and brothers and loves and interests and that were taken away from them and um to find the kernel of truth in in the girls is what um i try to be as honest and honor them as well because they're real people you can just jump in here meg and say uh thank you so much for all of the research that you did that goes into your book um i think something that kids struggle with when we talk about historical fiction is the idea um, that just like realistic fiction, this story could have happened. Um, so we teach how realistic fiction could have happened today. It didn't, um, but everything in the book could have taken place. And then when we get to historical fiction, it's harder for them to see that the writer is writing a story that for everything we know could have happened at that time in history. And the way that historical fiction writers do that is through a tremendous amount of research to make the settings, to make the characters as real as they possibly can to bring that true history to life in a way that only fiction can do. Um, so what I love about both of your books and all of my favorite uh, historical fiction titles, honestly, is the author's note and the references at the end that say, what is true and this is how this is how i came up with the story and these are the facts it's based on and these are the pieces i had to fill in 
Um, and then also, I think in Benno's book, you have a great list of, and if you want to read other books about this topic, uh, both nonfiction books and then other children's literature, there is a great list at the back for that too. Just want to say thank I you. Do, I do an incredible amount of research um, for both. I mean, Benno is a, a tiny little picture book. I, I forget what the word count is. I counted it recently. It, it's, you know, 800 words or something like that. And I knew volumes of any histor any writer of historical fiction worth their salt knows 99.9% .9 more than what ends up in the story. But you have to have that base of knowledge to make it feel real, to make it sound real and believable. I mean, I, I review books for the um, Historical Novel Society. Um, I read a ton of historical fiction and it always irks me when there's something in there that's like, yeah, no, I don't, think, I don't think that existed then or I don't, you know, that's not right. And it, it ruins the entire, it throws me out of the dream. And, um, and then I'm, and then I, then I put my critics hat on and then it's doomed from then on because I'm going to find everything. But for the most part, most historical fiction is, and, and when, is very well researched. And one of the things I do when I pick up a book, the first thing I do is read the author's note at the end, because I want to know, I want to know if that fictive dream is going to get broken or not. I want to know going into it, how much research the author did and how much, and, and for the most part, it doesn't spoil the story for me, but I, I need to know, because I hate to be reading a story and then think, is this true? Is this not true? And then read afterwards that it's not true. If I knew that, I would have just let it go. But right. And the truth I think is, the author's note is very important. The truth is honestly so much more fascinating than what the fiction might be. Um, and I think that question that you even, you even start in your reference pages in your note with is what is true is such a relevant question for our kids today, not just at elementary, but secondary level and for adults too. Like what is true and how do we verify that truth and whose truth are we talking about anyway? There's so much going on in our world right now that's kind of breaking apart that question in a tragic way to so to have the ability to go back and say, well, when we're reading this story about this cat, Benno himself might not be a true cat from Kristallnacht, but the story that's being told here, these are the things that really did happen and this is how we know, is a really important conversation, I think, to have with kids. Yes, I think kids need to know, I mean, when I am writing, facts are what's important telling the truth and doing it honestly. And I have to be careful because sometimes I end up with a boring story because it's all facts. And then I have to go back and start all over again, which is what I'm doing right now on another project. But um, <laughs> because there's just so much cool stuff and I want them all to understand them. This is just so exciting, but really it has nothing. They don't care. This doesn't matter. But I do think that Facts matter. It's, it's what's important. Mm -hmm. Other thing I really appreciate about both of your books is the perspective that's possible through reading them and sharing them. 
Um, there are a number of books I love reading with my class that change perspective throughout the story. So like in Paper Hearts, you're changing perspective between these two girls and you do it in such a beautiful way that you really feel um, Zlatka's courage and you feel Fania's kindness. And I'm so sorry if I mispronounced both of their names. Um, but you can go back and forth between those two characters and that's awesome on so many levels. One, it gives kids the opportunity to connect deeply with one or the other or both. Um, two, it breaks it up in a way that makes it digestible for them. And three, it just shows them that people interpret the same situation and respond to the same situation in different ways. Um, so I love Wonder is another book that does that, I think, really well. Uh, because of Mr. Tara, the kids love because there are just so many characters in the book that are able to tell their story themselves. Um, and even though Benno's story, the perspective is always through the cat, you can have amazing conversations with students about all of the perspectives in that book in a way that is like you said, it's not judgmental. It's emotional, but it's not judgmental. So you can talk about the two friends and how one day they weren't walking to school together anymore and they weren't playing together anymore. And you can look at that from the perspective of both friends when you're wondering, well, why? What caused that? What do you think they're both feeling about that? Um, and so I think perspective is another really key part of children's literature um, that you have done as, as wonderful authors should do. You've done an amazing job of bringing that to light, bringing the ability to share multiple, multiple perspectives with our students. Was, you know, we were talking about like how you read books differently at different ages. And I think when I was a teenager, that would have just been a little sad blip and I would have kept right on going. And now it's just like utterly gut-wrenching. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's different to read anything that you read when you were younger, reading it as an adult. I mean, even Night, we read, you know, parts of Night with our students, and there were just parts that I had, you know, blocked out, I think, that were not, or that they just didn't resonate with me, like they resonated with me now. And so it's, and I think that's what's so great about your books too, is you mentioned, and I, I like YA, but it's not the thing that I'll pick up all the time, but I felt like your books could both transcend, you know, ages because they really can have so many different impacts depending on where you are in your life when you read them, you know? Well, Benno, I think that, I think Carben said it was like for third to fifth graders, but I get emails from middle school teachers all the time. Yeah. Uh, still about, because it's one of the introductory books um, mm -hmm. people use. Our, um, our, our teacher on VCSS who introduced us to Benno, she is a high school teacher and she uses it in her classroom. And I think like you said, I mean, it just makes tough, and that's kind of what we're talking about is it just makes tough topics accessible, palatable, and you can absorb them without constantly feeling, you know, shocked by everything, but you still, I get that value, get that perspective, 
that you would get from any book, even though it is a, a picture book and beautifully illustrated. Isn't it gorgeous? I had absolutely no say in that. When, when people write picture books, you, you don't get a say in who you, you know, your illustrator is. And I suppose maybe some people do, but I certainly didn't. It's my first book. And um, I was terrified because Carben kind of has some, some of their illustrations are a little more whimsical. Mm-hmm. And I was terrified. And um, they sent me the link when they, fig- when they picked um, Jose Bission, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing her name because I don't speak French. She's French-Canadian. And um, when they sent me the link to her uh, website so that I could see what kind of work she did, it was, I was just so relieved because, and my son was, he was still home. Um, he looked at it and he said, oh, it's like shattered and broken, just like the glass. Um, amazing. I, I, that's yeah. a really interesting process to have. Well, and, and, you know, for picture book writers, you really have to leave space. It's only half the story. Um, even though you, most picture book writers don't work with their illustrators, you have to leave space for the, illustration, for the illustrator to tell their half of the story. So I had a really interesting project idea while you were talking and you know, you were just, when you were mentioning how much research you do and we're always trying to figure out ways to make research projects interesting for our kids because when they end up turning into a a paper, I mean, quite frankly, at seventh and eighth grade, you know, we write all the time. We don't need them to reproduce like a huge research paper. That's not really the skill set that we're like working with at that moment. But how cool would it be if, if they did a research project on a very specific event like Crystal Knot and they had to produce their own children's book like through it? And then we had them share with other students in like other grades or classes for the illustrating rights. And they kind of did that sort of blind process. Like how cool would that be? That would be amazing. And then we could publish the books, like not publish, but you know, send them off to a feta to, you know, Kinko's or whatever and, and give them to like our, uh, our elementary school kids. That would be so, that would be really fun. Great idea. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be so cool. That'd be really fun. We would teach them some creative writing as well. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like their product is something that is usable. It's authentic. And it is something more interesting than just writing a paper, but they're still getting those research skills and those creative thinking skills. Oh yeah. And the nuances of what all goes into it, like the collaboration and then the art. So you're not just integrating just is a horrible word. You're not only integrating (laughs) (laughs) um, language arts and history or research and writing and history. Now you're doing the arts integration too, which can just take things to a whole nother level. Hey, everybody, we want to give you money. The Virginia Council for Social Studies proudly presents many grant opportunities in the name of Lorraine Stewart, a committed patron of social studies. 
Available in increments of $250, the Lorraine Stewart Mini Grants are periodically awarded to VCSS member social studies teachers at grade levels K through 12 to develop, plan, implement, and evaluate innovative instructional strategies. Apply today on the VCSS website. If you're listening to this episode before November 19th, 2020, you are in luck because you still have time to register for the VCSS November Scholars Hour. This month, our panel of experts will be discussing how to include, celebrate, and incorporate American Indian histories and cultures into the social studies classroom outside of the scope of Thanksgiving. All of our Scholars Hours take place on the third Thursday of each month from 6 to 7 p.m. via Zoom, and you can earn recertification points for attending. Plus, you don't even have to be a VCSS member to come. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. So register today using the link in our show notes or visit us on Facebook or Instagram for more details. Now, back to the show. I've been thinking about a lot across the board, across whether we're teaching about slavery or we're teaching about American Indian history in our classrooms. Um, I think definitely at the elementary level, and my hope is at the secondary level too, teachers know that children's literature is a great doorway into these hard topics. It's a great foundation. It's a great conversation builder. There's so much power in children's literature. And then the next question we grapple with is how to select the appropriate books. And so I might talk out of both sides of my mouth with this one because there is a very stringent process you want to follow when you're looking for books to share in your classroom and asking yourself the same questions you'd hope your students ask, like who wrote this book? for what audience, with what research, whose story is it telling, whose story is it not telling, and you want to do all of those, all of that analysis as a teacher first before you introduce a book that might be um, inappropriate to share with your kids. On the other hand, in a very intentional and clear way, I've shared books with my kids that are in my opinion, inappropriate representations of history, um, such as books that paint slavery with happy faces. I'm blanking on the title of one, but essentially the introduction in the, like, is it antebellum is before the Civil War? Getting that right, don't want to flip it. Um, But the antebellum picture at the beginning of the book with enslaved people smiling happily in the fields is exactly the same image they use after the Civil War when enslaved people have been freed and now they are sharecropping on the same land with the same happy faces. And I share that book with my kids with the question of who drew these pictures and what message does this send to the reader? And is this a message you think is appropriate for this historical period just to build that conversation. I think that's a great thing to do because if if you're you're teaching the kids how to how to look at it and look at it with a different perspective to really examine what is going on whereas if you're hiding those kinds of books from them then 
they won't learn to question them themselves. So the boy in the striped pajamas could, I mean, in all honesty, I've never read it because the premise of it to me is just mind boggling, but, but, you, but you can have that conversation with them. And, and the same with the wolf by wolf. It's like, okay, let's talk about what, what is glaringly wrong with this story. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's a technique for information literacy, you know, and if that is what you were going into the classroom trying to do, and you, and I think, I, I personally think that doing those lessons requires 10 times the preparation. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you really have to do your due diligence and you have to be prepared for anything that your students will, will say in reaction to that as well. Um, and you have to be mindful and I, I don't know why I keep saying you, I'm not talking to you directly, Katie, but we have to be, we have to be mindful, you know, as teachers to ask questions when the students say things that might be inappropriate in response to anything that is said as well. And that's also something difficult. But like you said, Meg, I mean, if you, if we censor these books, you know, entirely, then it becomes hard for students to know what red flags to see, you know, when they're doing their own research and they're working um, outside of our classrooms, you know? I mean, I think that's a really good technique, Katie. Um, and, I agree, yeah. Um, and also I think it brings to light why the topic of this podcast is so important because um, using children's literature uh, to teach hard history goes beyond just knowing the titles of some awesome books to read to your kids before you start your lesson. There's a lot of thought. There's a lot of unpacking. I mean, you could take one, look what we've been doing with Benno. You could take one children's book and unpack it across an entire week at least and pull lessons from it each day that are going to help your kids be uh, more careful, critical readers, uh, more creative artists, and as well have like an understanding of the multiple stories that come out of one historical event. How do authors and teachers, how, how can we all know where to draw the line um, in terms of content for different age groups? Uh, and Katie, you sort of touched on this when you said, you know, asking those questions about who wrote it, why did they write it, um, and what research was done. All of those questions are excellent. And how can we, and Meg, maybe you can provide perspective as an author, because as I've mentioned, I just think that both of your books do such a, a beautiful job of recounting something that is horrific, but not making it entertainment, you know, making it respectful and you just did your due diligence along the way. And so how can you know, how do you as an author know that something isn't too tragic or upsetting for your audience? Uh, and how, what's your sort of process for drawing that line? For me as a writer, um, there has to be hope. There has to be some glimmer of hope um, in the story. Um, there has to be something, I mean, I, I couldn't have written Paper Hearts, if Fania and Zlatka didn't survive. It, it, it's, there has to be something that makes you believe in humanity. 
coming out of that out of at, at the end of the story that you feel like people not everyone is horrible that the world is not a bad place there has to be hope um i think that's for me what i'm what has to be the the gold and the gold standard and that and and being as truthful and honest as i can be and i, I think a lot of times i mean you in terms of what's appropriate for what age, I think everyone needs, teachers are gonna know their kids, parents are gonna know their kids what's better. I often think the philosophy that I took when I was rearing my children is not what we tell our children, it's how we tell it to them. Um, and if I'm doing it as gently and honestly as possible, then they're going to understand you know, today they get this much, tomorrow they get that much. They get, you know, each time they get more and more. Um, so I just try to be as honest and forthright as I can be and have some, and not squash every dream in them at the same time. I was going to say the word that came to my mind when I was reading both books, but especially Paper Hearts, was reverent. Like they're both just reverent books. And I think that tone, like you said, is really like the, the way that the books are, are written, the way that they're told is what really sets the stage to make them such good books for, you know, Paper Hearts for my middle school students and even high school students, and then Benno for elementary and middle school students. Everything you said just connects so much to what I was thinking and so much to what I think is powerful in instruction, um, especially the, the question isn't necessarily the what is too tragic, but the how do we tell about these tragic events? Um, and I'm growing myself in this topic because I think if you'd asked me even a year ago, if the Holocaust was an appropriate topic for fourth graders, I would have said, well, absolutely not. It's dark and tragic on a scale that is, that's impossible even for adults to grasp. How are you going to tell this to nine and 10 year olds? But thinking through it and looking at the literature that's available and thinking also through, I'm saying that about the Holocaust, but I teach slavery. I teach about hundreds of years of slavery in our country, which is tragic and awful. Um, so it's about how you present it. And I think your message of hope is so powerful. Um, the context that you deliver the teaching in, um, the before work I think is incredibly important when you're introducing the bigger questions or the bigger concepts that we're studying through this. If it's perseverance, if it's hope, if it's um, how even on a larger idea, um, in our fourth grade classroom, we do wrestle with questions like, well, do governments treat people fairly? Or are different, do different groups have different advantages? And what, what positions have those advantages? Um, those are all, I hope I'm making it sound very academic and scholarly, but those are all questions that we talk about in elementary school. Um, and I think it's two points to add. It's making sure it's introduced properly um, with thought and with planning and with the understanding that these are 
children that are going to be introduced for the first time to some very terrible ideas. Um, you obviously want to keep all of that in mind. Um, but also the importance of introducing children to these tragic topics in that gentle way, in that thoughtful way. I'm reminded of uh, what Dr. Jeffries said. He was our, uh, well, he wasn't our keynote. He gave a great um, speech at an event at our conference uh, last fall where he talked about the importance of inoculating children to history so that we're being honest with them when they're young so when they, they don't feel lied to when they're older. It's, it's definitely a daunting task, especially with teachers who are faced with um, such constraints on our time. I think especially this year, I am planning like minute to minute. I am conscious of how every minute in my classroom is being used. And hard history needs time because you need that time to introduce it. You need the time to discuss it and you need time to have kids be able to ask their questions. And when they ask their questions, we need to be able to say, I don't know. We need to be, we need to be willing to enter that discomfort with them and say, we're all dealing with this, this together. We're all wrestling with what could have caused such a horrible thing to happen or what causes people to do these bad things together. Um, so being, being okay to not always have all the answers, I think is important too. Um, and maybe that takes a little stress off of like really stressed out teachers. Yes, I, I have the utmost respect for teachers. I don't know how you do it on a, during a normal year, let alone this current pandemic. I, I, I honestly don't know how you're, how you're functioning and how parents are functioning and schooling and all that. But you're absolutely right. In order to teach these horrible subjects, you need to know what you're talking about. You, not that teachers don't, but it, I can see how some teachers would just pull a book off the shelf and say, let's do this without, and this goes back to what we were talking about before, without really knowing the work and what are you doing. And, and then, and I can understand the idea of, I, I absolutely agree with the idea of, you need to some everybody every once in a while needs to say, I don't know. I don't, I don't have an answer or let me try to find the answer for you. Let's find it together. I 100% agree. I think, and I think too, it, this year is particularly daunting because we're all doing so many new things and we all feel like we're brand new at our jobs, even if we've been teaching for 17 years, you know? Um, but the, the good news is, is that there are tons of resources out there, especially for teaching slavery and the history of people of color in the United States. And especially with um, the topic that we've kind of leaned into today, the Holocaust, um, the Virginia Holocaust Museum has so many good resources and I highlight them mostly because uh, they're, uh, their education department is just phenomenal and they offer a lot of free webinars and resources for teachers so you can definitely reach out to them if anyone is ever curious and feels like they really just need to fill their bucket with a little bit more knowledge so that they can feel more comfortable in the classroom teaching this really tough topic 
they're out there. And there's also another program called Echoes uh, and Reflections, I believe. Uh, and they do a lot of uh, webinars as well that are free for teachers who are just learning to dive deeper into these topics. And so anything that uh, we can link in our show notes, I will definitely do because it sometimes I think for teachers just feels overwhelming to search for these things. It's like, where do you even go? There are so many things out there. Um, so we'll try to refine it. And uh, Katie, hopefully we can link some of these things on our website as well yeah. for everyone. Um, so we're kind of drawing to the end here, I think. Um, one of my questions, Meg, for you is what do you, when you were writing Benno and writing Paper Hearts, what do you hope that your readers are getting out of your works? I want to teach children, read not just children, because I think certainly Paper Hearts, adults can read Paper Hearts, but I want people to learn about the Holocaust. But I also, right up with that, is that I want them to have a good story. I want them to have characters that they can relate to, situations that they understand. I want, to, I want them to be able to somehow see themselves in the story. Um, I want the story to be engaging um, and interesting. And I want them to... to, to enjoy the characters and love them as much as I loved them when I was writing them. Um, so, and then out of all of that mess, I want them to come away with a sense of who they are and how they would behave. At least to start thinking about that. I mean, quite honestly, when I was writing Paper Hearts, I used to, I was, I would never have survived. I just, cannot imagine going through what those women went through. And, and they were young, they were teenagers. And I, it makes you stop and think, how would I behave? Who, who would I be in that sort of a situation? And I hope that it, I don't expect anybody to have an answer because I don't think anyone has an answer to that until it happens to you. But to think about what kind of person you are. Um, yeah, like Meg, when you said, um, that you want kids to be able to see themselves in the stories, that's another really, um, hot topic right now. But as school districts are, um, incorporating anti-racist curriculums and they're becoming, um, more culturally responsive, when teachers look at their classroom libraries and when we look at the books we're choosing, I think another important note in the conversation would be um, how we represent so many different stories, especially those stories different from our own. Like I'm looking across our conversation right now. We are three white women talking about so many elements of history that we didn't, and I'm grateful for this, personally experience. Um, but how do we get all the perspectives in there that we can't tell or the perspectives that represent kids in our room who are different than us, who look very different than us or who have been, who grew up in a very different 
way than we grew up, which at my age now is like everybody in my classroom. Oh, please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but making sure that our literature is reflective of what we hope our kids of what we hope our kids will see for themselves in the future that gives our kids both the identity that they have right now that they see themselves right now in their books and in the classroom and also like you were saying that they see who they could be that there are books about change makers and there are books with characters as resilient as yours that they see like this is something that this person did that I could do too if I was ever faced with a situation that rhymes with the situation I'm reading about right now. Yeah in the world of children's literature the need the, there's a whole movement we need diverse books um, which is in making space about making space for our own voices for those people to tell their stories. Um, and it's so, and I know in the publishing world, I mean, in the, in the children's publishing, everybody's young and white um, and mostly 99.9% and female. Um, and I know that there are changes happening there as well, um, or at least starting. Um, it's people need to, kids need to see themselves. And thankfully um, I think in, children's literature that's becoming much more um those authors are getting um getting their their time um much needed well you know and considerably overdue um and in in terms of jewish books there are lots of books everybody's like no more holocaust books we need books about jewish kids doing you know just being kids or with a jewish theme in them and there's lots of talk about how do you what makes a book a Jewish book? Um, and I personally think that there will never be enough Holocaust stories until there are 6 million of them. But um, I also understand the need for there to be books where it's just not where Jews are not just victims. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but these are all, we need to change the way we look at the world. And we do that by introducing our kids to people who they're not gonna meet normally um, in their day-to-day -day lives. And how, who are, how are they gonna meet them? They're gonna meet them through books and movies and television shows. And I, I hope, I think that's also all changing. Um, yeah, I, one of the things that you said that just resonated with me just now is that you know, we need books about Jewish children or Jewish people who are in the YA world who are not just victims. But I think that's why Paper Hearts is so special is because I, I would not say that those women, I mean, they were certainly victims, right, of, a, of an oppressive and horrible system. But how empowered they were by each other's friendship and by their community, I mean, 100% they were, they were victims, but also they were sort of their own heroes in a way, their own heroines. And I think that that is really special to see, to see that they had an identity outside of being a victim. Um, and that I think makes it special um, in its own right. And 
at, at least to me, in terms of the Holocaust literature that I've read, I think that this is, Paper Hearts is particularly special because of that. Thank you both so much for being on this episode. Uh, it was truly a delight to talk to you both about teaching tough topics in the history classroom. Meg, we look forward to sharing Paper Hearts and Benno and the Night of Broken Glass with teachers and students around the state. Are there any other projects that you're working on right now that you wanted to mention before we leave today? And is there anywhere that uh, any teachers can find you if they're interested in just picking your brain or learning more about your writing process? Teachers can always reach me through my website. Um, there's an email address there and, and I love hearing from teachers and students. I, I don't write history papers or reviews for their, I often get little notes from teach from students saying, my, I have to talk about the themes of paper hearts. Could you please tell me what the themes are? And so I have to, anyhow, but I love hearing from students. It's, it's a lot of fun and teachers as well. Um, I am always working on a project. Um, my, my agent is currently shopping around a, another historical um, fiction Jewish story based on the Lower East Side before it was the Lower East Side of New York. Um, it's about the Jewish mob, but um, you know, we talking about how the Jewish, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. As I was writing it, it's it's very much an immigrant story, but um, but it's it's out. We'll see. Who knows what's going to happen with it? And then I'm working on another historical project, which is based in four different time periods in four different locations. So it's it's very complicated. And probably I bit off more than I can chew. So. Well, we can't wait to read both of those. I, I am sure, I mean, if they're anything near the level of Paper Hearts and Benno, I just know that they're gonna enrich all of our lives. Uh, I can't wait. Um, so thank you so much again for speaking with me today. And listeners, don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And if you liked today's episode, subscribe and give us a five-star review as it helps others find our podcast. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time on Content to Classroom.